Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Each of us has our own perceptual bubble, describes Jetsama Akon Lamo, as she unveils for us the dynamics of how we perceive and react to everything around us. Actually, what I'm going to talk about is perception. Perception as uh, we experience it. The reason why it is necessary to talk about perception as we experience it is that it's not something that we would be able to pick out and isolate uh, in any way, or at least in any truthful or honest way, unless we talked about it um, in order to, to draw out some factors that we might miss. The reason why is that perception is such uh, an all-inclusive experience. It's something that occurs in such a way as to color uh, every experience that we have of perception. And so it's very difficult to isolate what we are perceiving. Um, an example that I give again and again, and one that I must continue to give because it is the best way to understand, is the example of the glass of water. Um, to me, uh, this glass of water appears small. Uh, it's a small glass of water. It appears cool, and it appears wet. To an ant, this glass of water would not be considered small, and that it's very much, uh, very, uh, certainly large enough for the ant to drown in many times over, he and his entire, or she and her entire family. Um, to a creature that came, say, from the deepest part of the ocean, this water would not seem cold. It would not seem cool at all. In fact, it would seem probably intolerably warm. Um, to a creature that came from the ocean, any part of the ocean, the water in this glass would not necessarily appear wet. It would probably appear, appear normal. It would have, uh, if, it, if, the, if the creature were used to sea water, the water would appear like a different atmosphere. Um, but it wouldn't appear wet. Wet would not be the feeling that that creature described. Yet to me, because I am dry, that water is very wet, and it changes me when I put it on my body. Uh, because I am quite large, this water appears very small to me. This glass of water appears small to me. And because my temperature is about 98.6, is that right? Usually, 98.6, this water seems quite cool to me. If I were to submerge myself in water of this temperature for an extended period of time, I would probably become ill. So the perceptual experience that I have, 
I take for granted. I absolutely take that for granted. There's no time whether I would take a glass of water and consider whether or not it is wet. I would, of course, assume that it is wet. And I expect all water to be wet. Um, I would never drink this water and try to decide the question of relativity regarding the water's temperature. Uh, I would never think this water is cool to me, but it would not be cool to another sentient being unless I were teaching a class about that. I would simply drink it and it would register as cool. I know that it's cool. It is cool. Yet again, to another creature, this water would not be so cool. So there are a lot of different issues concerning this water that I would never consider. And my reaction to this water will be typical. It will be repeatable. It will be expected. It will never be a surprise unless something puts, somebody puts something in this water that uh, I didn't expect to be there. That, of course, is some indication as to what perception is actually like, how it is an all-inclusive experience, how it, is, it seems so solid and so regimented, and yet it is actually dependent on our conception of self-nature, uh, how flexible, how actually unbelievable the experience of perception actually is. Let's go a little bit deeper and try to examine what perception is all about. First of all, let's, maybe we should work from the outside in. We've already looked at this glass of water, and that's a pretty gross example of perception. Let's, uh, looking uh, at, from the outside in, let's examine another aspect of the perceptual experience. What does one do with one's perceptions? What does one do? Okay, let's, uh, let's see, let's use, this is kind of fun. Let's use the glass of water again. Let's say that let's say that uh, I had many experiences of drinking this glass of water today. Let's say that I had set out a goal for myself of drinking 10 glasses of water a day and the water was all this temperature. Let's say that um, the water was, uh, let's say it was about this temperature, let's say it was fairly good tasting water, fairly clean as this water is. Uh, actually, this is distilled water. Let's say it's distilled water. Let's say it has a certain typical quality that is pretty uniform throughout the day. And let's say that at a certain part of the day, I felt hot and thirsty or hot and tired. And let's say at another part of the day, I felt chilled and uh, needing to put on some clothing. Let's say the weather changed radically throughout the day. What I would do throughout the day while I was drinking this water, assuming that it was fairly uh, evenly spaced throughout the day, is that I would have a different kind of experience each time I drank the water. If I had just maybe run or done some aerobic activity and then I drank a glass of cool water like this, it would be really refreshing. I would be hot and I would be tired and I would be thirsty and I would want that water and that water would seem to be real refreshing. But if my goal was to drink 10 glasses of water a day and I didn't manage to do that before I became totally filled with water, 
which is very likely if you're trying to drink 10 glasses of water a day. Um, and if I drank the last part of that, the last portion of that, at a time when I was satisfied and, and I was not hot, in fact, I was a little chilled, and uh, maybe I was ready to go to bed, and um, maybe I just wanted to, you know, get under my covers, and I was re- my body was feeling like it didn't really want to drink water at that time. The experience of water then would be not thirst quenching. It would be, uh, it would not be satisfying. Remember that it was deeply satisfying before because I was running and I had aerobic activity and I was hot and thirsty. Now the water becomes not satisfying. Now it becomes a chore. Uh, if I drank the water before, I felt happy about that. I eagerly awaited it. I looked forward to it. I took it into my mouth and felt really uh, sought out the sensation of having that water in my mouth. But if I drank the water during the last part of the day that I've described as feeling much different to me, the water, uh, I, I would not try to taste the water. I would not try to feel it in my mouth. I would not try to really input that sensation. Do you, do, do you detect the difference in, in what I'm saying? Have you ever experienced that? I w- it would be like taking medicine. It would be to fulfill an obligation. I might actually feel put out that I have some physical condition or some reason in my body for which I need to take 10 glasses of water. I might feel put out. I might feel that it's a shame that I can't just be like other people who don't have to think about what they eat and drink. And I might be put out about that. I might think that other people are healthy and beautiful and they don't have to work at it. And by golly, I always have to work at it. And it's just a shame. It's really a shame. Not only that, but if I drink this last glass of water in order to fulfill my obligation before I go to bed, I'm probably going to have to get up in the middle of the night. And that really irritates me because some people can sleep through the whole night and never have to get up. And I won't be able to. Did the water change? Is this the different water than what I drank earlier in the day after I, after I worked out? Is it a different water? Probably the same, maybe it's the same glass. Maybe I use crystal all of the times. <laughs> you know, it, it's all distilled water. It didn't change. The temperature is about the same. It's actually just room temperature sitting in a cool room. But my experience changed radically. My feeling changed radically. What happens throughout the day? Due to this taking of water, I perceived the water. The, the water should have been perceived in the same way. The water did not change. But what changed throughout the day was the reaction to that water. And what changed throughout the day also is that I drew different conclusions from that water. I even drew conclusions about myself from that water. If you think about it, if you really watch your mind and you really are close to your mind, if you really are honest with yourself, when you drink this glass of water, and I'm telling you this from personal experience, after you've done aerobic activity or after you've worked out, you feel good about yourself. You know? You feel, hey, I lost all this sweat. Now I'm bringing it back. Water. What a girl, right? What a girl. And then at the end of the day, when you're drinking that water because you're on a diet and you need 10 glasses of water today, 
at the end of the day, you think, what a porker. (laughs) What's wrong with me that I have to drink this water every day, 10 glasses of water a day? I feel like I'm about to float away. How come other people can stay slim and they don't have to drink 10 glasses of water a day? What's wrong with me? These are the conclusions. Well, what happened? You drank a glass of water earlier in the day and you felt like... You were on top of the world. You know, you felt like Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. <laughs> just, just can see all that shoulder development coming up. <laughs> and at the end of the day, after you finished your glass of water, you felt like, who did you feel like? Oprah. <laughs> Post-diet Oprah. She doesn't feel good about herself right now, I don't think. So what has changed if we examine our minds, if we befriend our minds and really look at ourselves honestly, we can apply that what has changed is our reaction and the exaggeration that we make due to these reactions or the conclusions that we draw due to these reactions. Do you think that this only happens to you when you drink water? No. (laughs) This happens to you all day long, every day. And this is the experience that we have that we actually call our lives. It's like that. If we could film it somehow and play it back to ourselves, we would be appalled at the content of our day. At the perfectly innocent experiences that we have had, that have we have reacted to, and we have built an entire scenario around that reaction and used that reaction to construct for ourselves a super construction which is artificial, useless, because it varies every moment according to the reactions we have to our perceptual experience. And What we actually do with that is to make an artificial construction, and that artificial construction we believe to be 100% real at every given moment. Like, in the morning after my workout, or in the afternoon after my workout, I was Linda Hamilton and I felt good. I was easily 35 pounds slimmer in the morning than I was in the evening, don't you think? Maybe 50. (laughs) Maybe 110. (laughs) But at night, it was Oink City. (laughs) And the reason why is my reaction, my inner perception. The glass of water did not change. My body did not change throughout the day. Nothing changed. And we're like that about all of our lives. The experience of being one way in the morning and being another way in the evening as a reaction, a simple reaction to a glass of water is very real. It's very real. Not only an experience like that changes, but what also changes? Moods. Mood swings. Uh, Let's say you're married. Do you think that you respond to your husband or wife the same as you did when you were Linda Hamilton, as you do when you were Oprah? No, you feel differently about yourself. You feel differently about yourself. So the response is going to be different. You're going to feel different. It's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? And it engages throughout our whole lives. 
Now we have to ask ourselves, what is at fault? Is it the perception of water? Well, some people actually think, as they develop on the spiritual path or, or try to practice on the spiritual path, that the fault here is recognizing anything at all. They think that the, the um, this is the natural consequence of, uh, of, of perceiving phenomena in a solid way. Uh, we call this illusion. And there are actually some different philosophies, both in traditional religions, such as Hinduism, and in some New Age kind of thinking, that think that the problem is in having the glass of water, and actually thinking, uh, in perceiving the glass of water. So some people practice in such a way as to say, there is no glass of water. It's all an illusion. So I'm going to make my mind very stable because nothing is happening. There's, there's no phenomena, really. It's all an illusion. So I'm going to think like that. Just try it. <laughs> Just try it. Any of you that think that you can do that, come up here. And let me throw this water at you and see if I can get you wet. In fact, give me just a minute and let me see if I can throw this water at you in such a way as to make you sputter. I bet I can do it. I bet I can do it. I don't really want to try it because I don't want to get hit with a lawsuit, but I bet I can do it. According to the Buddhist teaching, it would be an extremely neurotic response to deny that this water exists. If you have any doubt that phenomenal reality actually exists, you should stick a pin in yourself. And stick it all the way in. See if you can get it to hurt. You'll get it to hurt. And at that moment, you will know for sure that phenomenal reality actually exists. In fact, the reason why that meditation, that kind of philosophy, doesn't really work too well is for that very reason. You can say, this is just illusion. None of this phenomena actually exists. But what you can't do is you can't say that in front of a speeding car. So, of course, you become disillusioned with that belief. And you sort of practice it, but you sort of really don't believe it because I don't see any of you walking out in front of cars. Then the other thing is that you lose faith, you lose any awareness that this is the case, or you lose any kind of belief in the uh, uh, non-existence of the phenomenal world when some tragedy hits you between the eyes. Like, for instance, for a child, it would be when mom doesn't get that figure. You know, she doesn't buy me something in the, in the toy store like Jonathan wanted. Uh, that's when reality hits you in the eye. And you, you, can't, you can't say to yourself, phenomena doesn't exist. Because if it doesn't exist, why do you want it so much? You know, you want it so much. And then let's say you have the loss of a loved one. At that time, no one can tell you that that pain does not exist. You feel it. It exists. It's real. And then, and then uh, another thing that uh, you might notice is that when your life changes in such a way as to cause confusion, such as the changing of a job, the um, the. Uh, uh, loss of some experience upon which you based a great deal of security. Uh, 
Any experience like that, upon losing such a thing as that, the reality, the hardship of phenomena comes crowding in. And it is very, very real at that point. So we have to think about uh, phenomena in a different way. We have to try to understand what it is that actually is to blame, what causes the suffering. Not the water, I don't think. Because it's true, the water didn't change throughout the day. <clears throat> According to the Buddha, it is not the experience of phenomenal existence that causes suffering or confusion. It is not the experience of that. It is the desire that arises through the reaction to phenomenal existence. According to the Buddha, we react to percept toward perception in certain ways and those ways include attraction repulsion and neutrality neutrality must be understood as not being non-reaction neutrality is like a, re a mixture of attraction and repulsion uh, when you react in a neutral way towards something like right now I'm not thinking about the water too much so I'm going to drink the water and it's just okay doesn't quench my thirst too much. I'm not exactly Linda Hamilton, and I'm not exactly Oprah right now. I'm just a teacher, and I'm not thinking about the water too much, except as an object to teach with. So that's neutrality in a sense. But I've also, I've already run, in order to arrive at that conclusion of neutrality, I have run through the idea of attraction and repulsion already. It's subtle, but it has already happened. It is that reaction to phenomena that actually causes the mind to become tight and confused. How does perception actually occur? In order to understand that, one has to really practice and study for some time. Uh, the, for instance, if one were studying Buddhism, Buddhist philosophical teaching. Philosophical teaching, uh, according uh, to, the, uh, to the Buddha, includes the understanding of what the true nature is. The true nature is, is described very loosely in that once one has described the true nature, one cannot really understand it. It doesn't really work well with words. Words cannot uh, contain the nature. The, the, the nature cannot be accurately described because once you use words, you are confining something that cannot be confined and you are conceptualizing something that by nature by nature is free of conceptualization in fact that is one of the definitions that is commonly used is that that nature is free of conceptualization so you really can't describe it it is described very loosely however as being the non-dual non-duality of emptiness and awareness now we we cannot understand the non-duality of emptiness and awareness because we think a thing is either empty which means there's nothing there to be aware of or you're aware of something but the nature is described as being more like sheer luminosity that kind of awareness a non-specific awareness that is simply described as wakefulness but in a non-specific way. 
That kind of awareness. Not aware of something, not aware of an object, but wakefulness. The mind is described as being empty of self-nature, not contained by any concept of self. There is no distinction between self and other in the true nature. Empty of self-nature, empty of any description or conceptualization, yet luminously wakeful. That is the primordial wisdom nature. And when one accomplishes meditation in the Buddhist tradition, one actually experiences that wakefulness in such a way that the mind is completely relaxed. Within, the psychic channels, winds and fluids are completely pure and totally relaxed. The winds that, uh, that actually convey consciousness that are constantly moving throughout the body and cause the eyelids to flutter, not the gross winds that you breathe, but the subtle inner winds, these winds are absolutely stilled. In perceiving, in, in, a, in, in accomplishing meditation uh, by which one perceives the primordial wisdom nature, one is simply in a state of sheer luminosity without any contrivance, any conceptualization whatsoever. The mind is totally spacious, completely relaxed. There is no perception that is clung to in any regard. That is the true nature. It is considered that each and every one of us, even though it seems that we are sentient beings involved in feeling experiences, that that is our nature. And consequently, although we have no cognition of this or no understanding of this, we actually are synonymous with emptiness. We actually arise from uh, the primordial empty nature. What has happened to us somewhere along the line, however, is that we have conceived of the idea, the supposition, the ideation of self-nature. There has been an assumption. That assumption did not happen when we were born. That assumption, according to the Buddhist teaching, happened a long time ago. Time out of mind. We can't even measure. Beginningless time. That assumption of self-nature made it possible for us to experience the continuum that we are experiencing now, which is called the death and rebirth cycle, the cycle of death and rebirth. That continuum of death and birth and death and birth is only due to the assumption of self-nature as being inherently real. When one assumes self-nature to be inherently real, what is the first thing one is going to do? Immediately, one will cling to that assumption. Because when one assumes self-nature, something happens, there, something is built. Where there is the all-pervasive primordial wisdom nature inseparable from any display of that nature where in the natural state form and formless are completely non-dual where in the natural state resting and movement are completely non-dual 
upon the assumption of self-nature, upon that gentle, gossamer-thin assumption, the first idea of self-nature, at that moment a continuum is born, a thing. And in order for that continuum to express itself and to continue, there is the need to continue to assume self-nature because the nature of that assumption is that if one assumes it, self-nature continues. If one does not, there is no assumption. And so the natural, all-pervasive state simply remains stable. That state never changes. How could it? That which is changeless cannot change. That which is without conceptualization cannot respond to concept such as time or beginning or end. But the idea of self, that continuum that is born at that time, in order to survive, must continue. And how does it continue? It continues by clinging to the idea of self. That is the only way that it can continue. In order to cling to the idea of self, one must distinguish between self and other. In order to distinguish between self and other, one must react toward other. In order to continue that experience. Now, according to the Buddhist teaching, the idea of self is not the problem. If you think of the primordial wisdom nature as being the all-pervasive womb of emptiness from which all manifestation, from which all display arises from the very most essential gossamer, subtle display of nature as luminosity, to the very most hardcore and gross assumption of object as solid form. All things are included and are birthed from the primordial empty state. That's like the mother, you know, the great womb, the great ah, the all-pervasive wisdom. So that this display occurs is not the problem. The problem is in the grasping to the solidity of that display as a means to continue the continuum of self. Because that is the only way, again, that self can be continued. Grasping to self, grasping to others, even if to other, even if one rejects other, that is still grasping to the idea of other. That is the problem. And the Buddha teaches us that all suffering arises from desire. In the beginning, it's very simple. You have to grasp the idea of self, and you have to grasp the idea of self's environment. But eventually, simply by the law of nature, that must become complicated. Because in order to distinguish between self and other, you have to exaggerate the difference between self and other. You have to draw conclusions about it. 
And it is the conclusions that cause the suffering. Remember, the glass of water, the experience of the glass of water, remains the same throughout the day. But in the early part of the day, it helped me. It was extremely satisfying to me. It made me happy. At the later part of the day, it made me feel unattractive. It made me feel bad about myself. The same glass of water gave me happiness and gave me suffering. How is that possible? Is it the glass of water? Is the fault here? No, the fault is in the exaggeration of the perceptual experience of self as distinguishable from others and the clinging that occurred to that experience as being meaningful. We must remember that the this idea of meaningful is constantly changing. It is loosely defined. It is totally relative. And it becomes extremely complicated. There are all manner of modifications that occur constantly. If I were to become anorexic and end up weighing 95 pounds, this glass of water would never do to me what it did before, probably. It would be a totally different experience. On the other hand, if I were to go the other route, I'm just kidding, please don't make that happen. If I were to go the other route, I would have a totally different experience of everything, of everything in my life. And it really has to do with the perception of self-nature as being inherently real and the clinging to that continuum. So, in our tradition, we're taught many techniques as to how to rid ourselves from that. If we really examine what happens when you have this kind of experience, all that you experience, all that occurs within your life, every perceptual experience, both the most subtle inner experiences and the most uh, gross and easily seen uh, outward experiences, all of them occur due to the experience of self-nature as being inherently real. If there were no assumption of self-nature as being inherently real, how would this have any meaning at all? There would be no meaning to this. That this is liquid would have no meaning. That it is warm or cold would have no meaning. That it were contained in an object for what purpose would have no meaning without the assumption of self-nature as being inherently real. So all experience arises, actually arises from this central point, this point of origin, and that point of origin of every experience that we have in our lives right now in this continuum, and that's all we ever have is this continuum, arises from the assumption of self-nature and the decision or the clinging to continuing that continuum. So one antidote that we apply on this path is to generate oneself as a primordial wisdom deity, uh, like a Buddha such as Avalokiteshvara or Chinrezi, the, the Buddha that, uh, whose mantra is Om Mani Padme Hum. 
or Amitabha or one of the um, enlightened figures that you see in the different pictures and statues. We actually generate ourselves as one of those deities or Buddhas. And the way that we do that is to initially meditate on emptiness, the experience of shunyata. Meditate on emptiness. And from that experience of emptiness, this breath of compassion as a display of that emptiness actually arises. And then the deity itself, the seed syllable, and then the deity itself. And all of the surrounding environment then becomes changed due to generating oneself as the deity. It becomes the celestial palace rather than this. The generation of oneself as the deity actually purifies the perception because the goals are different. You see, on the one hand, we're trying to continue the continuum of self-nature based on the clinging to the idea of self-nature. In generating oneself as the deity, the deity arises naturally and effortlessly from the meditation on shunyata, meditation on emptiness. And that practice is used as an antidote to the clinging to self-nature and the desire to continue the continuum. It's actually used as an antidote. Then other meditations that we have are the kind of meditation that's done uh, before this class, which is a meditation uh, in which one relaxes the mind by letting the mind rest only on the breath and allowing all thoughts to totally be disengaged, to not follow certain kinds of thoughts. And that creates in the mind uh, spaciousness. One loses the habit or begins to lose the habit of, of tightly continuing the continuum in a very tight and, and uh, focused way. We lose the habit of focusing on specific phenomena begin to develop that sense of spaciousness. So there are many techniques by which one wishes to, by which one actually applies the antidote to the problems that arise with the perceptual experience. (coughs) One thing that you should do, however, is to consider perception. Consider the mind and how it dupes you. Very important. Because all the experiences that you have ever had of happiness or unhappiness, of contentment or of suffering, are actually due to that reactive perceptual conglomeration, that superstructure that is constantly created in the effort to continue the continuum. It is desire. It is reaction. It is desire that causes all suffering. The cessation of desire and the cessation of the mechanics involved with desire, the pacification of all of that, the relaxation of the mind, the pure luminous awareness that one can arrive at due to one's practice, that is called enlightenment. That preciously, precious awakened state, that state that the Buddha described as being simply awake, that is called enlightenment. And that is... The goal, of course, of the path of of Buddhism, certainly it is the goal of the path that we practice here. One way to motivate oneself 
toward really practicing sincerely in order to achieve an auspicious result. To practice in such a way that you don't give up your practice. You know, you really continue it. It's so often the case that we think of ourselves as spiritual and we think, I'm going to practice. And so you find that you're going to practice. And then you think you're going to practice. And you think, well, today I can't practice. And then try to practice the next day. And then maybe the next day you can't practice. Pretty soon a week has passed since the day you decide you're going to meditate every day and practice. And you might have practiced twice or meditated twice, we don't have the motivation. One way to establish that motivation is to turn the mind by recognizing what the content of your life has actually been. If you recognize it as a roller coaster ride of experiences due to such things as glasses of water and whatnot, and it's all due to reactive perceptual clinging, you realize that that has been the content of your life, that all events that have come to you have been neutral in nature. It is how we interpret them that causes our experience. Our experience is our interpretation. That that has been the content of our lives. It's frightening, isn't it? It's enough to make us think, time to stabilize the mind. It's enough to make us want to get a hold of ourselves because we've suffered terribly. You know, we've had suffering experiences in this lifetime that we don't want to go through again. And according to the Buddha, there's really only one way to do that. And that is to pacify desire. To pacify clinging. And that starts with the clinging to the experience of self-nature as being inherently real. That is the only way to nix the suffering of samsara. So I hope this has been helpful to you. Uh, Time is getting away from us. And uh, I hope that you will consider this and use it, utilize it to to turn your mind toward Dharma and to turn your mind away from the confusion that we revolve in constantly. So thank you very much. has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot